Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, this is Sophie Hanna, and you're listening to Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types. I am your host, Eric Beatner, and I bring you three more crime and mystery authors today, starting with Bracken McLeod. McLeod made a name for himself in horror writing circles with his novels Stranded and Come to Dust. He's back to his thriller roots, though, now with Closing Costs, which tells the story of new homeowners who suffer a home invasion that threatens to destroy their happy home and a whole lot more. Bracken lives outside of Boston, and we started by talking about the city where I also lived for several years. How is Boston? Uh, I've, I, I miss it. I have not been back there in years and years and years. Oh, you know, it's it, it's Boston, right? So uh, so it almost, you know, it never changes. It's, <laughs> it's just getting, you know, it's sort of getting denser and denser. Oh, wow. You know, and congested roads, just like the rest of the city. So I still love it here, you know, but it's, uh, you know, it's uh, I, I go into the city a lot less now that I live out in the suburbs than I used to when I lived in Cambridge, you know, right across the river. Right. Yeah, I was I was right in uh, Back Bay, right next to uh, oh, okay. right next to Fenway. And uh, it was a great place to I went to college there, but it, it was a great place to go. It was a great place not to have a car. So right. it, it was such a walkable city and I, I can't imagine if it's if it's getting uh, super congested now. You know, it's it's still a walkable city. It's getting less and less drivable every year. Uh, yeah, no, that was one of the things that I missed when, you know, when we lived in Cambridge, we were right off of Mass Ave. And so anywhere in the city I wanted to go was just, you know, take a short walk up to up to Davis Square, you know, across the line in Somerville. And I'm anywhere. Yeah. Right. And and now we live out in um in Framingham, you know, about 18 miles out of the city and everything's got to be a plan. You got to get in the car. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the burbs. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, that conveniently brings us uh, to your latest novel, Closing Costs. So uh, we, we're good at transitions, I guess, you and I. Uh, but you, sir, are a writer that I have known about for a long time, but uh, but more for your horror works. Uh, and then here you show up with a suspense novel in Closing Costs. Why uh, why break out into something a little bit new? It's it's funny because it's actually something a little bit old. My first novel is a, is a straight up suspense thriller uh, about a mass shooting in a diner. And I kind of ended up being an accidental horror writer. Um, because, because people would, you know, they would ask me for a story or, or something, um, with a supernatural element and, and I didn't think that it was anything I wanted to do, but it turned out that I was all right at it and I had fun with it. So the next two books I wrote were sort of supernatural speculative novels. And I wanted to try to, for the next book, I wanted to kind of go back to basics and what I done when I was, when I was first publishing. And part of that was, you know, that I don't want to be, I, I you know, uh, Joe Lansdale is like my, my spiritual guy. Yes. In, you know, in writing. And whenever Joe puts out a book, whether it's a comedy or an action novel or a Western or whatever, nobody says, oh, he's doing crime. Like I thought he yeah. was the Bubba Hotep <laughs> guy, right? 
and they just go, Oh, a new Joe Lansdale novel. And I kind of want to have that same vibe. Like I don't ever want people to just think, Oh, well, that's the guy who does, you know, haunted ship novels. Right. 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 I still think it has an element of horror in it, you know, to the extent that, that anything that right. say Jack Ketchum has published or silence of the lambs, you know, or right, horror right. work. Well, and it really is, it's a thin line between horror and, and straight up mm-hmm. suspense. Right. I mean, it's there, like you say, you, it could just be that supernatural element or, or the one thing, but I guess sometimes it's, it really is your definition because there are horrific things that happen in this book for sure. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I think they're definitely, you know, sort of overlapping circles on a Venn diagram where, um, where horror and suspense bleed into each other quite a bit, uh, you know, no pun intended, but, you know, I think that's the, you know, the, the beauty of horror as a genre is that it can inhabit any, you know, other genres tropes and, and, and mm-hmm. sort of fold themselves uh, into it. So, you know, and, and it's one of those sort of perennial debates that we get into in the, in the community is, is, you know, is alien a horror movie or a right. sci-fi movie, <laughs> right? Is, you know, is Silence of the Lambs, you know, a, a, pol- a police procedural, right? Or, right. A, you know, a slasher film. And you're, and you're like, okay, you know, why not both? Right. <laughs> right. And, and that's kind of how I feel about, about closing costs is, you know, why not both? Why not? It's a domestic thriller. Uh, you know, it's this suspense book. But it's also got these elements of horror that I'm trying to draw from some of my favorite work and my influences, like, you know, like Jack Ketchum and and Thomas Harris. Yeah. Well, it also draws, I think, from the anxiety of one of the most stressful things that we do in adult Uh, life, which is purchase a house and and hope you made the right choice. I'm assuming that there's got to be some grain of a a story of a house purchase that you yourself made that, that Oh. planted the seed of stress that then blossomed into this novel. Right. Yeah, so much of this so much of this book sprang out of, you know, my actual experience and um back when I was still a lawyer, I had made a decision I I've been a, a litigator um my whole career and and I had just gotten tired of of acrimony and fighting and I'm like I'm going to do something where where people are feeling good and they're building things, so I'm going to start doing you know, like small business counseling and real estate. And what I realized is that nobody's ever if you've ever had to call a lawyer, you're never at your sort of emotional and mental <laughs> best, yes. right? You're always stressed out about something. And, and you know, and the, and the market prices in Boston being what they are, you know, it's, I've got people who are going to spend half a million dollars on a two bedroom condo in yeah. Cambridge and they're stressed out because it's <laughs> such a, it's such a giant thing. And so, yeah, the idea that, that buying a house is not this sort of sunny, easy, uh, experience, you know, seemed to me to, to be really a natural idea. Like it's just always kind of stressful because the banks are late yeah. getting this paperwork and all of that. But even more than that, you know, things change once you become a homeowner. You know, when we lived in Cambridge, we were renting a, a, the first floor of a triple decker. And we had just gotten, you know, we'd, we'd outgrown it. You know, my my office was also the dining room was also the, you know, the kids playroom was also the library. And it's like, I need, yeah. you know, space. Uh, we all need space. And so we moved out to the suburbs and the, the quality of people who, well, not the quality, but the, the, the kind of people who come to your door changes mm. entirely. Yeah. So, you know, when we were in the city, someone would knock at the door and they're trying to sell me magazine subscription or, you know, get a donation to the high school, you know, band or whatever. Right. And then I move out to the suburbs and suddenly people are trying to sell me material improvements on my home. And what happened, there's a scene in the book that actually is drawn from my own experience where a guy came to the door trying to sell us a, uh, a security system, home security system. 
And when I answered the door, he started talking to me like we had known each other for years. He knew my name, my wife's name, where we had lived. Oof. Right. And I'm like, you know, how do you know all this about? And he finally confessed that, you know, that that they follow public filings in the registry of deeds. So whenever somebody buys a house, they just pull the new deed and and get all this information. Uh, you know, and he sort of said it with a smile and a wink, but you could clearly tell that his part of his shtick, part of his sales pitch was to really put you on your back foot yeah, and make you feel like, oh, if it's that easy to learn things about me, maybe I do need a security system. Yeah. Right. And that's kind of where the, that was the, the trigger point for closing costs. Like I had that experience and I was like, I could, that could be a whole story. So did you buy the security system? <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm not telling. Oh, okay. <laughs> you have to come to my house and find out. No, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll try to break in and then we'll, yeah, we'll see we if did. it works. It's, it's, it's funny because, you know, it, we did. We moved from the city. And so, you know, every night I'm going around and I'm locking all the doors, making sure the windows are closed and latched and all this stuff. One of my neighbors asked us if we could. He was going out of town for a couple of days and he was like, can you feed my fish while I'm gone? And it's like, yeah, of course we can. You know, just, uh, you know, leave me a key, like, you know, bring over a key. And, and the guy's like, uh, oh key huh and i'm like yeah and he's like oh you know we don't ever bother to lock the doors unless we're leaving for like a week or more but whatever <laughs> you know and he's like but whatever you know you're comfortable with i'll leave you a key it's cool and so we go over the next day after they leave to go feed the fish and taped to the front door with my name on it is a big white envelope with a key inside <laughs> instead of like under the mat or something and i turn the doorknob and the door's unlocked <laughs> so, so, so you, you, you know, moved to the suburbs and the 1950s at the same time exactly <laughs> well i'm sure all your neighbors are really pleased with you now that they're uh, having to reevaluate where they live <laughs> after this book is it like wait a minute maybe i'm not as safe as i thought i was uh, exactly <laughs> it's funny you know it was it was those experiences that really made me think about that we have this you know, illusion of security in houses and in neighborhoods. It's like, oh, it's a lovely walking neighborhood and nobody mm. ever comes here. But I mean, that all that means is I could go in my basement and scream my head off and nobody would hear it. Uh -huh. Right. Or I look at my front door and, and it's got this big giant glass window and you smash the window and the padlock is useless. And you go, yeah, you know, yeah. we, we, we sort of give ourselves these, these illusions of safety when when the reality is that someone who's sufficiently motivated you know could over overcome most of uh, most of what we have on our house and uh, and I'm, I'm certainly not encouraging people to become paranoid and get like steel shutters and a <laughs> solid core door and you know and all of that but i just you know i want i want people listening to this to you know to think when they go to bed at night like how close is that window to my doorknob yeah yeah <laughs> and then yeah. try to go to sleep <laughs> <laughs> this, this is why we don't have basements in California. So eliminate one of the threats. Well, but the home invasion, I mean, it's, it's the inciting incident of this book, but I mean, it really does, it becomes about the marriage really at, at the core mm -hmm. of this, right? Well, you know, it, it does. I, I wanted to do something different with this book, which, you know, so many thrillers, especially sort of domestic thrillers, you know, set in houses, revolve around a troubled relationship. And people who are on the brink of separation and divorce and, and yeah. how stress sort of forces them back together. And I wanted to do the opposite, basically. <laughs> I thought the stakes were much higher if this was a well-adjusted, happy couple who are forced um, into a really bad situation where they might be forced to make the choice. If I stay, we both die. But if I run, maybe I get away and I can send someone back. Yeah. And, you know, and that seems like such a harder choice 
if you're not already ready to throw in the towel on the relationship. I mean, you know, if you yeah. do, even if you're getting divorced and you care about your spouse, that's a hard decision to make. But, but I just wanted it, you know, to be so much more focused on them as a partnership. All right. Well, we, we're gonna we're gonna get deep now here because right. I, I, let's talk about the mental toll on those of us who write dark fiction and yeah. you know constantly seeing the world as potentially being a frightening or, or a dangerous place. I mean, sort of a two parter here. First, do you think that you are an optimistic person, and you know how easy is it to separate sort of the the real world from the fictional world that you're always having to imagine the worst case scenario? Right. I'm a worst case scenario guy. Part of it is the way I grew up. That's that's not a good start to the story. (laughs) I know it's not a good start to the story, you know, kind of in, in rough places. And, and, uh, and part of it is, you know, training as a, as a lawyer, you're always thinking about, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? Mm. You know, how do I approach this problem to prevent that? And so, yeah, no, I do kind of like go through life with these thinking and trying to imagine the worst so that I can plan for it and hoping for the best. And, and, and it's hard for me to say whether I'm an optimist. I'm certainly not a pessimist. You know, if the glass is, is half full to this person and half empty to that person, you know, I might be thinking this glass is twice as big as it needs to be. All right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, it's like, and I do, I have, I have odd intrusive thoughts because I'm always thinking about story and I'm always thinking about like, how would, how would this translate into a story? And so, you're driving down the road and and I see uh you know a car drift over you know the double yellow lines mm-hmm. you know and I think most people would sort of think like oh you know they're looking at their phone or whatever and I'm thinking you know what if this person is sort of pushing their emotional boundaries and trying to figure out whether they could drive into oncoming traffic right right you know and that's sort wow. of where my mind goes into this into this really dark place of what if that was intentional and they chickened out and that becomes the germ of a story idea. Like, could you write a story about someone who was, who was trying to find a way to break through their inhibitions to do something awful? Remind me not to take any road trips with you. <laughs> <laughs> Next up is Sherry LaPena, the best-selling author of a half dozen domestic suspense novels, the latest of which is Not a Happy Family. This new one is about three adult children of a very wealthy couple, and when mom and dad are murdered, accusations abound, and it just might be one of the kids who did it. Or maybe not. LaPena is Canadian, and we spoke from her home outside of Toronto. Well, Sherry, we we almost met in 2020 at Murder and Mayhem in Chicago, where uh, oh. I was, yeah, I was going to be the MC uh, before it went virtual, and oh. I was looking forward to getting a chance to interview you there. Uh, yes. But you know, I went searching for uh, the questions that I had written out, but I could not find them, so I was I was sad about that, and I, I was even more sad that uh, my my monologue jokes, uh, are, no one's ever going to hear those because. <laughs> It takes me so long to write out what I'm going to say. It takes me as long to write the wraparound stuff for uh, emceeing that event than it does to write a novel, I, I think. It's crazy. I, you know, yeah, I imagine it's pretty difficult. Are they not going to be running uh, Murder Mayhem in Chicago live again sometime soon? But hopefully we will, yes. Yeah, so we'll, yeah. we'll get back to it. But uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll see. I, I was really, really disappointed that that, well, and everything else was canceled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of fun. Uh, Lori and Dana put on a, a, a great yeah. show. <laughs> so since we don't know each other un- until this moment, uh, 
let's start uh, way back at the beginning. What what was the first thing you wrote? Did you, you get an early start as a, as a young woman or did you wait until later in life? No, I, um, you know, I always wanted to write books when I was a kid, but I, I never uh, thought that was very practical. So I actually went to law school and became a lawyer for a while. And um, I didn't like that. So I became an English teacher for a while. And then I, you know, stayed home and had kids. And I didn't start really writing until I was home with my kids. And I was, you know, about 40. And um, when I started out, I started writing literary fiction. But I'd always wanted to write a thriller. I just, because I don't plot my novels, I just kind of randomly go at it. So I, you know, I read a lot of thrillers and I always wanted to write one and that's what I prefer to read. But I thought I would have to be able to plan it out because it's so plot driven. I put off writing a thriller for years and I finally just decided, oh, to hell with it. I'm just going to write one. And I had an idea, but I had no outline. And I just, I just winged it all the way through, just like I do with my literary novels. Nobody was more surprised than I was that, that I could actually write a thriller with a very complicated (laughs) plot without having any idea how that was going to work or turn out. And so I did it once and that was great. That was the couple next door. And then I was terrified when I had to do it the second time. <laughs> I'm always amazed at writers because uh, I'm, I'm an outliner myself. I, I, I mm-hmm. like to know where I'm going. And yeah. for books like these that are so tightly plotted, it's it, it's impressive. And I would think coming from a background of both the, the law and the, the structure of teaching, both of those are very structured. I would think that, that you would like to plan things out. Do you know what? I wish I could plan things out. And the odd thing is in my life, I'm, you know, I'm told I'm a little bit of a control freak and I I like to plan and I like to outline my life and I have a a one-year plan and a five-year plan. (laughs) You know, I'm a planner by nature. So I don't know why I can't write books like that, but it's just, I have really tried. And I remember Claire McIntosh told me once, she says, what you need is a murder board. Like she used to be a cop, right? So she has her big board up and she has all her stickies and what happens. So I actually decided I would try this and I got a big piece of white bulletin board paper and my daughter, <laughs> she was really into it. So she splashed all this red paint on it. So it was like blood splatter everywhere. And it was great. But I sat there and I thought, okay, so I have my opening idea. And then I sat there and I, I had no idea what was going to happen. Like I just couldn't think of anything. So I have to start with just one, one idea and one situation with a couple of people that I don't even know very well, but I know what, what they're starting with and then they take it from there. And if, you know, then one thing leads to another and then character and plot interact and it organically just kind of goes somewhere. But I really do wish I could plot things out. Yeah. And certainly my editors would prefer that I plan things out. (laughs) I bet they would. Well, this, this leads to a question that I, I was going to ask you later, but this this works perfect here. But because a hallmark of your books is, to me, what it seems like really tight plotting, and and with the kind of thrillers that you write, they really do have to be kind of bulletproof in, in that way. And I, I'm assuming that this can't all happen in the first draft. I mean, how how do you go about shoring up? plot holes and potential places where the reader might be able to get ahead of you and figure things out? Is it, is it all you? Do you hand out the beta readers? Is it your editors? Who, who handles plugging the holes? Yeah, it's, you know, it doesn't all come out in the first draft. The first draft is a pretty messy animal, let me tell you that. But I do at least get my story down. And I, I know who my characters are and I have the pace and I have all the twists and all that. So I get the story down. And then we have to go back and I, I don't have beta readers, you know, basically because there isn't enough time. So I'm on a book a year. 
basically I send the book to them and they go, oh, you know, it needs a lot of work. And I go, I know. And then we, um, you know, I've changed the ending <laughs> for some books. Um, oh. the, way, the way my books often work is I'm juggling a lot of possibilities at once because I don't know who did it or whatever. So I'm juggling all these things that I'm, right. I have all these threads where it could be A or it could be B, it could be C. And I'm keeping them all viable as suspects until towards the end, it comes clear to me who's the best one. And on occasion, you know, we've gotten together with the editors. We've thought, you know what, maybe make it C instead of B or whatever. And then all the stuff is still there, but I short some things up, as you say. And, yeah. I, and I usually go in and I add things when I'm, when I'm editing. And sometimes I take things out. Yeah, I, mean, I assume that there's probably maybe a point where you reach the end and between you and your editors, they think, well, yeah, this could use another twist or, you know, maybe maybe here in, uh, you know, towards the back half, it needs another little something in there to keep people hooked. And you have to now you have to dig in and uh, and add a misdirect in there to something that's that's already in motion. That's that's got to be difficult. It's difficult. I know for um, one of my books, I added a whole other a uh, pair of characters to thread through just to give more depth and to add more oomph. And that's, oh, wow. that's tricky just because the timeline is so tight, right? That's when I start wishing I'd had an outline. <laughs> but um, the editing is hard work. Well, your latest is Not a Happy Family, uh, in which the parents of three adult kids are murdered one night and uh, one of the kids might have done it. There's a lot of money on the line. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this is one crime statistic in in the real world that we all continue to ignore, or maybe we forget, is you know that you're if you're murdered, you're far more likely to be killed by someone you know, right? Mm -hmm. That's true. That's statistically true. And um, you know, money's a great motivator. <laughs> um, in this family, we have money is a big motivator because there's millions of dollars going to each of the kids, and we also have a you know. In typical Lepenia form, we have a very dysfunctional set of relationships. So there's lots of different motives and lots of different reasons why each of these kids and, and even other, there are some other people in the book as well who could possibly be the killer because, you know, I always have lots of red herrings and yeah. possibilities. It's an interesting story for me to do because I wanted to look at um, a more extended family. Like I didn't want to just look at husband and wife or, mm -hmm. you know, an intimate relationship. I wanted to look mostly at the relationship between these adult siblings and all the little rivalries they've had growing up because they had very dysfunctional, neglectful and tyrannical parents. So, you know, the parents played favorites and then it's fun to see how the favoritism affected the kids and the kids are they're sort of bonded by their perfect upbringing, but they're also in competition. So you get that feeling of, oh gosh, you know, someone in this family probably murdered their parents and who might it have been? So, and it's just, just a nest of vipers, really. <laughs> well, you've dealt with the, the sort of seemingly innocent facade before in, in, in a lot of your books, you know, the, the couple next door and, yeah. and a stranger in the house. I mean, the descriptions of your books often start with a, a phrase, you know, like they seem like the perfect couple, you know, but mm -hmm. so what is your fascination with blowing the lid off of domestic bliss? <laughs> I don't really know the answer to that, to be honest. And I don't know why, I don't know why I love writing it. And I don't know why people love reading it, but there, there's, there's something about, I don't believe in the perfect family. I think there's a lot of dysfunction everywhere you go. I just like to scratch the surface. I like to, I mean, if you read the news and you see what people do, 
it's it's shocking. So you think you know people have oh, yeah. people have strange tendencies and they'll do bizarre things and a lot of it is just unbelievable. You know some of the stuff you read in the news if you put in the novel people wouldn't believe it. They'd say, you know that wouldn't that couldn't happen. Right. <laughs> so uh, you know I read a lot of true crime <laughs> and I I watch a lot of you know true crime shows and forensic shows and stuff and honestly some of them are just bizarre. So people have a real range of of what they can do. And I'm really interested in psycho um, psychopaths. And so in this family, it's sort of, you know, the new thinking is that, you know, psychopathy is sort of on a spectrum. And so in this family, everybody's a little bit on a spectrum uh -huh. of psychopathy. And the dad is very likely a psychopath. <laughs> and he's, I had some fun with that because he's a very, very successful businessman. And, you know, they think that, you know, a certain percentage of very successful businessmen are psychopaths. I mean, they're not violent murderers. They're just psychopaths. Yeah. They put themselves first. It's just a question of how far will a person put themselves first? Especially during the pandemic, I have found yeah. watching people, some people are more into the collective good and some people are more into just themselves. And so it's just interesting to watch yeah. how people um, act. But I have to imagine if you start writing about a, a family and a dysfunctional family, the same way that if you write about a couple that then uh, turns out to maybe not be as happy as, as they thought, you probably get some sidelong glances from your own family and, and your own husband. Is, is, is there uh, any risk when you're, when you're deciding to write about a dysfunctional family that you think your kids are going to come back and say, Mom, is, is this secretly us? <laughs> you know, they've gotten over that. Okay. You know, I mean, my husband used to get questions sometimes. Do you ever look at, look at your wife across the pillow and wonder what she's got in mind for you? Because a lot of the times my women are killers, right? But they've yeah. kind of gotten over it. <laughs> I did have one in Couple Next Door. It was a complete slip where the neighbor with the camera um, that was watching my main couple, his name was Graham. And my just so happens my back neighbor, his name is Graham. And I just totally... <laughs> <laughs> he thought it was about him. And I'm like, oh my God, I never even, never even realized that. <laughs> so I, you know, my neighbors are more worried than my family is. Like they'll sort of ask me, oh, you know, do you get any uh -huh. inspiration from people, you know? And I'm going, no, 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 I make it all up. I see it in the news. Don't worry. I would never, ever base anything <laughs> on someone I knew. And to be honest, most of the people I know are lovely. I mean, how many psychopaths do you know? I do know a couple. I, I do. But I haven't put them in my books. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we recently found out our the neighbors behind our back wall were were moving, and you know we saw their house was on the market. And you do, I think there's a tendency to think the worst, like oh no, we've had such good neighbors, and they've been you know quiet, and they're not throwing wild parties, and they're yeah. not doing anything weird. But then you think oh no, there's going to be a whole new unknown factor moving in. I really hope this doesn't go badly. And I, I, I don't know if it's just, is it the crime writer in me who, who goes to that dark place? Or is that, it's probably all of us are a little worried about that sort of thing now, right? You probably secretly want those people coming in to come in and do something weird and give you some inspiration. But I, honestly, in my neighborhood, there is someone fairly nearby who was caught with, he had a journal where he planned to murder his wife and the wife found it and took it to the school. Oh. So, and I have other stories of people I know who've been, I know someone who dated a guy who was secretly married. It's all out there. Yeah. The strangeness is out there. 
I and and I I guess in a way I'd it would be more interesting to I I I feel like I'd almost rather find out that my neighbor was a serial killer than to have somebody who's constantly having loud parties on the weekends and <laughs> keeping making the dogs bark at midnight you know <laughs> at least the serial killer is probably going to try not to draw attention so he'll be quieter there you go he's going to kill outside of the neighborhood so I'm safe. <laughs> Finally, in this episode, I spoke with Chris Offit. Offit is the author of several memoirs, including My Father the Pornographer, as well as highly regarded novels such as Country Dark and his latest, The Killing Hills. He's one of the top practitioners of the new country noir revival going on right now, and if you love Daniel Woodrell or David Joy or Larry Brown, you are sure to love Chris Offit. Chris, you are one of those writers that I, I, I kept hearing about and, and who other writers uh, spoke of in, in reverent tones. So I, I made sure and I went out and I bought a copy of Country Dark uh, and I immediately said, oh, OK, I, I get it. I, I know why people are talking about this guy. When your reputation precedes you, uh, do, you do you have a lot to, to live up to when, when, you, when you're meeting other writers and, uh, and they say, oh, I've heard of you? I don't know. I, I never think about anything like that when I meet writers or plumbers or, you know, electricians or woodcutters. To me, I have an unusual job. I treat writing like a job and I try to do the best I can. You know, it's always cool to meet other writers, especially ones whose work I admire. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, only really a, another writer can understand what the life is like, you know, and yeah. Essentially, I've sat in a room by myself for the past 30 years right. and things don't go well with my writing. It affects my mood. It's really hard to try to explain that to anybody other than, you know, another writer. Anyhow, I don't I don't I don't know about this. Any reputation that precedes me. I think that sounds cool, but I, I don't pay attention. I admire that. I mean, and I try to treat it the same way. It's like if you treat it like a craftsperson, then uh, yeah, it's it's not. I've, I've never subscribed to that uh, idea of writing being this high-minded thing, and and finishing a novel is akin to scaling Mount Everest. And it, you know, it's 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 work, and and it takes time and practice, and just uh, you know, your your butt in the seat and your fingers on the keys uh, to get any better at it, right? That's my approach, but I think that that's a key for any you know any occupation. Right. Yeah. You know, if a house painter waited for inspiration <laughs> instead of going out and bidding jobs, you know, he's right. just sitting around smoking cigarettes, looking at his paintbrush. <laughs> so I just that that's kind of how I look at it. Is uh, as far as finishing a novel, it's it's it can be a tremendously good feeling, but it's also the end of something that you know I've spent you know in some cases years, but certainly a significant amount of time engaged it with and um you know there's a sadness to it it's like oh now what do i do it's it's over yeah well uh, you're back now with the killing hills uh, and like country dark uh, both books visit similar themes which uh, seem important to you you've got veterans returning home albeit from two very different terms of service and, and you've definitely and you've got that rural setting which is where you you put all of your stuff i mean and you even set the Killing Hills in, in the very same town as uh, right. the stories in Kentucky Straight. Right. I, I, mean, I guess it's it's safe to say that you have your your type of place uh, and your type of people that you like to write about, yeah? Well, it's essentially 
the county where I grew up, I uh, lived about 10 miles away in a community of 200 called Haldeman, which is gone now. I mean, at the time it was dirt roads and a grade school, and now it's paved roads and no grade school and no post office. They took away the post office. So, oh, wow. um, and that's where almost everything is set. For these books, I changed some names around simply because I, I didn't want to be too bound to reality. And I found myself when I was writing like, oh, Lyons Avenue doesn't go that direction. You know, uh, and <laughs> like Linda, one of the characters lives on Lyons Avenue at the end where I lived when I was in college there at the end of a dead end street. So I could see it all in my mind, but so I just changed things around for that. But essentially they're all set in the, uh, the same, probably four square miles of the woods that I, uh, you know, know very well. And then, uh, town. I always assume that anyone who writes memoir of, of which you have a few, is using writing to sort of work things out and maybe make sense of the world a little bit. I mean, do you do you do that? And do you and is it the same with the fiction and the nonfiction? Are you is it your way of sort of understanding the world that you that you live in? No, I think they're very different. You know, the the nonfiction these memoirs, every single one of them were unintentional, uh, and I know <laughs> when I say every single one. There's been three, and it's. Sometimes I step back and think, this is an absurd life I've, I've had. I've managed to write three memoirs before age 60. Like, I write all the time. I write, I write, I write, I write. And then at a certain point, I look at what I've got and see what it is I've got. And in the case of these memoirs, they were more interesting than, than the fiction that I was producing at the time. And also I was given a more, more focus. To answer the question, I think, is... Um, Yes, they, they're uh, a means for me to make sense of my, my place in the world, really to understand who I am mm. and just do it on the page. And it's helped me a lot writing these books. Those books has personally helped me just as a, as a human being. I'm a better citizen, a better father, a better husband, you know, a better son, a better brother, all this kind of stuff. And uh, I have a sense of who I am in the world and what's important to me. All of that feeds into the fiction. And then the, so, and the fiction is more of an attempt to portray the culture that I'm from as realistically as possible. So they're very different and I, they, I take a very different stance towards them. Uh, at this point, I'm, I'm hoping, really truly hoping that my life does not warrant memoir again. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, in a book like The Killing Hills, I mean, uh, similar to what you're saying, it seems like the, these places that you write about would almost rather stay hidden and, and stay out of the spotlight. These are people who almost don't want to be bothered with hmm. life outside of their little corner of the world, right? Well, there's it's a two-prong approach there due to the, the, the terrain and the, the geography of, of uh, the Appalachian Hills in eastern Kentucky. They have not been bothered by the outside world since right. pretty much the 1800s. So, and there was no reason for people to move in there either. So part of it is just the historical isolation and the geographical isolation combined with, as you say, uh, the preference on uh, people to be left alone. But that's also, again, a product of this, you know, 
if you have geographic isolation and you also have it from your neighbors, like in order to go to my neighbor's houses when I was a kid, we walked paths through the woods. It was just a lot quicker than using the roads. That kind of isolation from uh, people becomes something that people prefer. It seems like fertile ground to uh, to bring up a writer. You get used to being alone and uh, having to find ways to entertain yourself, right? Yeah, I mean, I didn't want to be a writer, you know, but I spent enormous amounts of time alone. I was not happy in the house. I wasn't always allowed in the house. School was boring as heck. You know, I read all the textbooks the first week of, of class every fall and then well now i've got whatever it is nine more months to figure out what to do so i mainly <laughs> just drew pictures and daydreams and and started writing stories around the fourth or fifth grade just to entertain myself but i didn't i never wanted to be a writer i wanted to be a race car driver man i wanted to be a movie <laughs> i wanted to be sherlock holmes uh, you know i wanted uh, then i wanted to be a painter and a photographer uh, but i always wrote and at a certain point in my late 20s I just sort of had to face the fact that what I did on a regular basis was who I am. Well, The Killing Hills, uh, it definitely seems like a great start to a potential series with Mick Hardin. Uh, Can we count on seeing more of him in the future? Do you want to? (laughs) I do. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I mentioned that the memoirs were accidental. Yes, this is, I've also... I always wanted to write a crime crime novel and thought I was, and was very influenced by crime fiction. Um, and a crime series was interesting. And under the quarantine, it just seemed like, well, I may as well give it a shot. And so I finished The Killing Hills right when quarantine hit. Um, and we lived out in the country and, you know, the kids were out of the house. And, you know, so there was, it wasn't a terrible, terrible Uh, ordeal, I think, for a lot of people who lived in cities and had children home, for example. Um, Yeah. Anyhow, so then I I just, I loved writing The Killing Hills. I had a, I I really loved it. So I thought, well, I'll write a second one. And that second one will come out next June, 2022. And now I'm closing in on the ending of a third one. All right. Well, I'll put it on my calendar now. I'm, I'm excited. I, that, that's that's great news. It's uh, it's great to get a chance to to meet you. And to, I certainly hope that uh, your life is calm and smooth and does not require any more uh, any more memoir. <laughs> yeah. not, not that I wouldn't be interested in reading them, but yeah, for for your sake, uh, yeah, lack of drama is a good thing. <laughs> Well, that's it for this time. Join me again soon for more crime and mystery authors and more great book recommendations. You can always find us on Twitter, at WriterTypes. We love it when you subscribe and when you rate and review the show. As always, thanks for listening.